Well, if you have a Bible, please come with me to Psalm 8. That's page 450 in the Church Bibles. It's a psalm that's been written by one king, but it's a psalm fulfilled by the King of Kings. And it's a psalm that maps out the destiny of God's people. And it's a psalm that's topped and tailed by praise, and the whole thing is, is wrapped in wonder. And it's a psalm, therefore, to lead us to worship. So Psalm 8, have it open in front of you. We have four things to say, four points. And point number one, the maker's name, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How majestic is your name. What's in a name? Where do you shop? You shop at Waitrose, Tesco, Lidl's. Names mean something, don't they? They carry with them more than just the sound of the word. What do you drive? Do you drive a Bentley or a Skoda? Or maybe you think you drive a what? Some names inspire or, and some names don't. The maker's name. Says David, open your eyes. Read the maker's name. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That word majestic. How majestic is your name in all the earth. If you open your eyes and look around you, you can read the Lord's name everywhere. Now, last week, Mandy and I were in Cornwall, and uh, more than once we walked through ancient woodland. Uh, The leaves on the trees have yet to appear, but the trees are covered in lichen. Lichen, it's, it's, it's two organisms. Uh, there's a fungus that needs a source of food, and there's the algae that needs shelter. And so the fungus and the algae have got together, they've united in this mutualistic relationship. So the fungus provides the algae with shelter, and the algae provides the fungus with food. Lichen. And you look at it and think, how clever. It's genius. But why, walking through that woodland, why is the lichen this beautiful silvery gray-green that covers the fingers of the branches like, like velvet gloves? There's beauty, grace, wonder. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And walking through the shady woods, there were carpets of wild primroses with their yellow petals and fragile beauty. And of course the flowers are there to attract insect pollinators and the pollinators are rewarded with nectar. Again you say, how clever! Genius! But why is the yellow of the primrose bloom so warm? And friendly, and in that shady woodland, so bright, like flickering candles to light our way. There's beauty, grace, wonder. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And as we were walked, so the birds were singing in the trees, singing their different songs, songs to establish territory, song, songs to, uh, which are all about courtship and recognition. And again you say, how clever. 
genius. But why are the songs so, so joyful and arresting? And the songs just seem to bubble up and overflow with life. You just have to stop, look up. You can't stop yourself from smiling. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, there's beauty, grace, wonder, majesty, awe. When you stop, open your eyes, open your ears, look around you, engage with the things that God has made, it makes you stop. It lifts your head. It draws you in. You you feel you want to hold on to the pleasures. If only you could gather them up and keep them and hold them close to you, gather up the pleasures of the moment. Well, if that is the effect on us, of the things that God has made. What must God himself be like? And perhaps we begin to understand when the psalmist says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The maker's name, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Read his name. Read his name in the newborn baby. The butterfly's wing. Hear it in the crashing of the waves. Feel it in the exhilaration of the storm. The brilliance of the diamond. The symmetry of the snowflake. And yet every snowflake is different. And those snowflakes, they're falling silently. And they're falling in their, in their billions and millions of tons. And yet the clouds don't break. How majestic is your name. In all the earth. Read it in the grace of a cat. It's March, isn't it? So the madness of a March hare. If you look at a hare, there is madness in its eye. Or just the sheer (laughs) chaos and, and bonkers of a walrus. Or the cheeriness of a budgie. The kindness, the fun of an elephant. You want as children to see the elephant, don't you? Or the majesty of a lion. Or think of the eye. How much passes between us without a word being spoken? Our eyes meet. It's windows into our souls. How can that be? Or coconut crabs. They live on the land. As big as a dog. And can carry a load greater than your luggage allowance. Or a spider, it's gossamer thread, it's five times stronger than steel. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Here is God's self-revelation. The wonders of the things that he has made, the wonders of creation, reveal the wonders of God. The things he has made speak of him. So when you see the majesty of what he has made the grace, the beauty, the loveliness, the wonder of it all, you begin to see who God really is. The maker's name. A name to inspire awe and wonder. The God who is worthy of our worship. And if the earth showcases God's handiwork, verse 1, what are the heavens? The silvery moon, 
And you can't stop yourself when, when this is sorry, but you, you find yourself whispering. Why do we whisper? Why does moonlight make us whisper? Speaking in hushed voices. There's a magic, isn't there? There's something, something that in that beautiful silvery light. And the myriad of stars. I never forget returning, um, going, driving through Sri Lanka. We were going on our way to Colombo. And we were driving through the middle of the night, and uh, we stopped at a respectable distance from a wild elephant. And as we stepped out of the van, we were in the middle of nowhere, it was the middle of the night. As we stepped out of the van, it wasn't the elephant we were looking at, it was the stars. I've never seen anything like it. They were so bright, there were so many. In fact, I know this sounds ridiculous, but looking up at the stars, it hurt my eyes. They were just so bright. Great jewels all over, everywhere. And again, your, your, your mouth, your jaw drops and you're filled with wonder. And then the dawn. The sun cresting the horizon. All the colors of the dawn, they're like bruises, aren't they? But then, then the sun itself crests and you see the glory. The blaze of glory and you can't look at it. Perhaps now we begin to see something of the glory and majesty of the Maker. But says David, when you've got to that point, you've barely begun. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. So we've been talking about the glory of the heavens, but God's glory is greater still. We enter the language of Job 26. Sun, moon, stars, yes, they speak. They speak of the majesty of God. But these are just the mere edges of his ways. They speak of the majesty of God, but the voice that you hear is but a whisper. How great thou art. Because when you see all that God has made, it's simply a reflected glory. It's a second-hand glory. It's a mediated glory. So what of the glory of God himself? Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. So point number two. Not everyone reads the Maker's name. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. In this world, God has enemies who say there is no God. And they're not content to leave it there, are they? They go after God, the enemy and the avenger. So how does God still them? How does God silence them? How does God put the record straight? Does he do it with violent storms and thunderbolts? Does the ground open up beneath them and swallow them up whole? Do fires consume them where they stand? So often God speaks in a still small voice you see if you have real authority you don't need to yell and shout and bluster god uses small voices to turn the tables 
Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the, event, and the avenger. Think of Hans, Christian Andersen, his uh, uh, story, uh, The Emperor's New Clothes. Um, you, I'm sure you know it, but the emperor hires two tailors who promise to make the emperor the finest clothes, the finest suit of clothes ever made. And there's a special fabric they're going to use. And the fabric is invisible to anyone who is stupid. So only the wise can see the fabric. Only the wise can see the suit. Of course, there's nothing to see because there is no suit. But of course, the emperor doesn't want to appear stupid. So he says he can see the, the suit. And all his ministers, they don't want to appear stupid, so, so they can all see the suit. And what a, what a beautiful suit it is. Everyone agrees this is a, this is a beautiful suit. It's, there's no suit that's ever been like it. And so the tailors, they dress him in this invisible suit, and there he parades in front of his subjects. And because no one wants to be seen as stupid, they all say, oh, we can see the suit. What a beautiful suit you're wearing. How fine, how wonderful. They can all see the emperor's new clothes until a child, a small voice, pipes up and says, but he's naked. He's not wearing anything. He's in the altogether. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. So here are the atheists, the humanists, the secularists, all the suave agnostics, the Attenboroughs, the Brian Coxes, who say, oh, it's a creation, but there's no creator. Oh, there's a universe, but there's no maker. And it's the emperor's new clothes. And since they're so clever, and nobody wants to appear to be stupid, no one disagrees. They won't say anything. But then you take a five-year-old and you show them the stars and a rock pool and a butterfly. And you say to this five-year-old, of course, it all started with nothing. There was nothing there. And from the nothing came something. And from the something came the, the butterfly and, the, and everything else. And nobody made it. <laughs> And the five-year-old looks at you, and in that look they say, do you think I'm stupid? A child's voice, a little voice, but it's strong enough to silence the enemies of God. The emperor's not wearing any clothes. It's obvious there's a maker. Everyone can see there's a maker. But it takes a child, says David, to say it. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Sometimes, actually, it's just a baby's cry. Out of the mouths of, of uh, babies. A baby comes into the world with nothing. baby comes into the world crying. baby comes into the world utterly, utterly dependent. And what's it saying? It's saying that we come into this world utterly dependent upon another. And he holds my very breath in his hands. Sometimes the voice that stills the enemies of God is spoken by a weak, suffering Christian. 
a weak, suffering Christian who's still praising the Lord. So, brother, sister, you don't know whether the trials that you go through and the fact that you're still trusting, still delighting, still depending in the, in the Lord, in the King, that'll silence all the, the smug, conceited views of atheists and agnostics. Is when they hear a weak, suffering Christian praise the Lord, they know that this is real. This is real. And they have no answer. And actually, they know it really, don't they? And one of the things that that gives them away is the language that they use. You listen to the the Brian Coxes. You listen to the the Attenboroughs. You listen to all those who, who speak about these things. What sort of language do they use? Do they use the cold, flat, monotonous language of science? Is that the language they use? When they start speaking of the things that God has made, their words are what? Filled with majesty, filled with wonder. They're unwittingly confessing the creator they say they don't believe in. Because when they see his handiwork, they know that flat scientific words are not enough. Majesty demands the majesty of language. How majestic is your name in all the earth. So, brothers and sisters, never be taken in by the emperor's new clothes. So, point number three. Man's place in all of this. Look at verse three. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So, when David stops and thinks about all that God has made, two things strike him. The first is how, how great you are, how great thou art. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, the work of your fingers, what do you do with your fingers? What do you make with your fingers? I used to make airfix models with my fingers. God makes the cosmos with his fingers. Think of it, billions of stars, millions of galaxies, distances we measure in millions of light years. They're made by God's fingers. They're no bigger to him than than an airfix model. He can put the whole universe in his pocket. David, what's the second thought? Verse 4, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The vastness of the things that God has made, the greatness of God. Why does God treat human beings in such a special way when we are so small and insignificant? In fact, God has gone further still, hasn't he? He's placed us at the very heart of his plans. He's he's bound his majestic creation up with humankind. Why? What's going on? Verse 5, Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 5 can be uh, translated. It's translated here as you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Uh, it can be translated, you made him a little lower than God. In God's creation, man is unique. 
There's no other creature like him. Because he's the creature that's been made in God's image. He's the finite reflection of the infinite God. He is therefore, in that sense, God-like. But as we'll see, we're more than happy with the translation we have here. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, museums all over the place, uh, there are ancient statues uh, of Caesar. Now, why are there so many statues of Caesar, so many statues of such antiquity? Well, it's because so many were made. They were churning out statues of Caesar in their, in their thousands and thousands and thousands. And they made so many, it's inevitable that quite a few have survived to this day. So all over the Roman Empire, there were statues of the Caesars. Every new Caesar, a whole new batch of statues. The emperors of Rome. Statues. It was a statement, wasn't it? It was a statement that Caesar rules. Caesar is king. He's in charge. This city belongs to him. This country belongs to him. It's not always very reassuring. We know what sort of men the Caesars were. Statues to proclaim whose ownership of this country, this city, or whatever. But the Lord is the true king. The world belongs to him. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's the king of glory. And so he populates his kingdom with statues of himself. But not statues made of stone. These are living, breathing, moving, thinking statues. Human beings. God has made them to rule. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So man was created to rule, to rule over the works of God's hands and to do it in happy submission to the God who made him, in happy obedience to the God who made him, to rule in that sense on God's behalf, to act as God's viceroy, to exercise a a kingly authority, and in his rule to humanize creation, so that creation would bear the image of the image bearer, so that the creation... And man, the crown of creation, might display an ever-growing, widening, deepening way the majesty of God himself. So verse 6, you have given dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So do you see? You look at the creation, and it bears the maker's name. And what's man's place in this grand design? Well, there's a sense in which if the stage is set, it's set for man. He's the one who plays the leading role. As God's image bearer, he rules over the creation on God's behalf. Answerable to God alone. Crowned with honor and glory. He's the king. The creation is his kingdom. The creatures are his subjects. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. That's man's destiny. 
That's why he was made. Made to rule over the works of God's hands in the name of God. It was an extraordinary destiny. So point number four, what's gone wrong? Look at verse six again. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. But that's not what we see, is it? The creation is in rebellion. Man's rule is, is challenged. All things are not under our feet. We have domesticated animals, and they yield after a fashion. And if you've got pets, uh, pets bear something of our image, don't they? They're, they're kind of on our side, but if you've got a cat, not always. But in reality, we're engaged in a life and death struggle with creation. And if the beasts don't get you, then disease, famine, and war will. It's quite obvious as you look at our present condition that the king has lost his crown. So what went wrong? Verse 5. Crowned him with glory and honor. What went wrong? When was the crown lost? Well, if you know your Bibles, you know what happened. The first man, the first woman, decided to go it alone. Thought they'd strike out for themselves. They'd do the choosing. They'd decide. Be down to them. they behave like God. In fact, we're better off without God. And they thought things that God had made were more real, more substantial, more satisfying than the God who made them. And so they rebelled, rebelled against God. And these finite reflections of the infinite God, once brilliant, beautiful, breathtaking, crowned with glory and honor, what happened to them? They became hostile and hateful, guilty and ashamed, at war with each other and at war with God. Okay, but how did it happen? They listened. They listened to the voice of an angel. The voice of a fallen angel. Satan weaponized them in his rebellion against God. And having listened to an angel, a heavenly being, a fallen angel, they found themselves under his rule. Verse 5, you have made them a little lower than the heavenly beings. They found themselves under the rule of this, of this being, this fallen angel. Satan, who's called now the God of this world. Who John in his first letter says, the whole world is under his sway. Paul writes to the Corinthians says, a world that's been blinded, by Satan, so that we don't see the truth. So such an exalted destiny. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. That's the destiny. That was the plan. But that's not what we see now. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. We're now under the sway of this fallen angel, the evil one. But that's not how it ends. 
That was the plan. God will fulfill the plan. He will restore human beings to their ancient destiny. How? Psalm 8. The writer of the Hebrews quotes Psalm 8. Hebrews 2, verse 5. Listen to this. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So he's speaking about God's new world, the new heavens and the new earth. Who will rule over it? Not angels. For it was not angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere. So he doesn't say it's Psalm 8, but he quotes now Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's all quoting Psalm 8. And then he goes on. He says, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. King's lost his crown. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So what does the writer of the Hebrews say? God, without ceasing to be God, became what he had not been, he became a man. He became bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. Jesus is his name. He came down into the mess. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He came down into this fallen, wretched, cursed world, into the mess. Where is he now? Well, he's, right, Hebrews says he's been crowned with glory and honor. Jesus has arrived at the destination that's appointed for us. There is a man, fully man, who is already wearing the crown. So through Jesus, we might be rescued from our ruin to fulfill that ancient destiny to rule over the works of God's hands. Now think of it like this. This summer is the ashes. I hope you're all excited. Cricket. England against Australia. Will we win the ashes? Will we regain the ashes? And someone, might, someone might say to me, what, what do you mean we? If England win, it'll be down to the team that wins, not you. Yes, but that team is representing the country. They represent us. I know if you're not English, it might not represent you, but they represent us. Now, I can't bat like Joe Root, and I can't bowl like James Anderson. But if they do what I could never do, if they succeed, I'll be able to say, we won the ashes. You see the point? 
Jesus represents his people. As the true man, he does for us what we could never do ourselves. So that when he wins back the crown, it's so that we can wear it too. He comes down into the mess. He's made a little lower than the angels. He has to endure the assaults of Satan, all that goes with that. He shares our ruin so that we can share his triumph. Made a little lower than the angels, so that through him we can be crowned with glory and honor. Think of it like this. A wild jungle ruled over by a serpent. And here in this jungle we live. And the serpent is aided and abetted by two giants. One giant is called Sin. And we meet him every day. And the other giant is called Death, who we will meet one day and who we live in fear of. And the serpent who rules over this jungle, his lie is that this jungle is all that there is. There's nothing else. Nothing more. But into the jungle comes Jesus. He comes to live in the jungle. He's made a little lower than the angels. He lives a fully human life, yet he's without sin. And the strange thing is, isn't it, when you look at him, creation behaves towards him in a different way than it behaves towards the rest of us. There's an unbroken cult that just yields to him. There are fish that obey his voice and fill Peter's nets. He's looking like the king, isn't he? When we read Psalm 8, everything under his feet, we're told that even the fish of the sea are to be under man's control. And he's come to cut a path through the jungle before the jungle's burned up. He's come to cut a path through the jungle, out of the jungle, to God's new world. And while he's here in the jungle, his every step is opposed. It's opposed by giant sin, it's opposed by giant death, and behind that, the serpent. But in the jungle, things come to a head. And it looks like the giants and the serpent that's behind them have finally conquered the man. Because he's nailed to a cross. He's numbered with the transgressors. He's put to death. This is Satan's hour. And yet, when we stand back, it's actually turned the other way around. Because it's by that very cross that he defeats them. By that cross, he makes an end of sin. By that cross, he puts death to death. By that cross, he crushes the serpent's head. And rising then from the dead, he cuts a path through the jungle into God's new world. And he says, follow me. He shares our ruin so that we can share his triumph. So that we might rule 
the world to come. And Psalm 8 to be finally fully fulfilled. Which is why the psalm ends, verse 9, by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We feel that that door to that world is already beginning to swing open. So it's time to finish. Very briefly, what should we say then as we look at Psalm 8? Well, I hope one thing it says to us is that we go around with our eyes open, looking for the majestic name. You'll see it everywhere. And the more you look, the more you'll see. The more you'll be filled with wonder. What shall we say? Brothers and sisters, the writer to the Hebrews quotes Psalm 8. He quotes Psalm 8 to believers who feel like giving up. What's his point? His point is this. How can we doubt our future when Jesus the man has already arrived there? How can we doubt the outcome of the Christian life when Jesus the man is already enjoying it? If he's already crowned with glory and honor, then joined to him, we too will be crowned with glory and honor. He's saying our future is as secure as the crown that is upon Jesus' head. He's writing to people who feel like giving up, who feel the Christian life's costing them too much, who feel they've given up too much following Jesus. But he says, look, 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 the outcome of the life that you're living, of the way that you're walking, of the path that you're on, that outcome is never in doubt because he's already there. And so joined to him, it's inevitable that you'll be with him. So now is not the time to give up and throw it all away. So brothers, sisters, maybe that's where you've got this morning. Maybe you feel, ay, 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 this Christian life. Have I really done the right thing? A few more years. A few more decades at most. And then to reign with him. Our future is as certain as the crown that is upon his head. So what are you waiting for? If the birds are singing, well, let's join in. Let's join in their anthems of praise. And be up and doing for Jesus. What should we say? Well, if you're not a believer, the psalm begins and says, O Lord, our Lord. If you're not a believer, he's not your Lord, is he? If you're not a believer, it's because, says the Bible, and you can look at it later, 2 Corinthians 4, it's because the God of this world has blinded your mind. You're living in the jungle. He says, the jungle is all there is. There is no savior. There is no way out. There is no future. And he'll threaten you with death. Giant death will scare you into submission. He said, there's no way out. There is no future. He's blinded your mind. But there is life beyond the jungle. And that life begins now. For all who come as a sinner 
to Jesus. God's new world. It's already begun. Why don't you sign on? Why don't you come to Jesus? Why don't you say, I'm, 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 I'm in this jungle. I can't make head nor sense of it. I'm lost. I, I've messed up. I'm blind. I can't see. I'm filthy. But I understand this. I get this this morning. That when Jesus went to that cross and died that death, he cleared away all the obstacles. And when he went to that cross and died that death, he was giving his life for filthy, messed up sinners like me. You can understand that. So say, Lord, I want to sign on. I want to become part of this new world. I want to be with you. So forgive me, change me, save me. Before it's too late. What should we say? Well, actually, the psalm tells us, doesn't it? It tells us. It tells us at the beginning. It tells us at the end. And everything is in between. What's the right way to react to this psalm? It is to bow the knee and worship. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We feel that, Lord, we're there are some things we understand and we get, and other things, Lord, which are just, we just can touch with our fingertips. And yet these things are wonderful and arresting and glorious. We thank you, our God, that this morning there is a man seated upon the throne. We thank you this morning all things are under Jesus' feet. We thank you that he has shared our ruin so that we can share his triumph and reign with him in your new world. Father God, we pray this morning if we feel that we're, it's all got too much and we feel overwhelmed, and may we feel like those Hebrews discouraged and beaten down. Oh Lord, we pray, lift up our heads that we might see Jesus. Put new heart into us, we pray. And our Father God, if today we have never seen these things and we think we can see but we've been blinded all along, oh, we pray, open our eyes that we might see Jesus, that we might bow the knee, that we might come and find in him true and real life, the very life of God, eternal life. Oh, Father God, give us no rest until we find our rest in yourself. Because this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.